Hello fellow adventurers and welcome back to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In episode 22 of the Nerd Lab podcast, I finally bring to you the episode I've been working on for so, so long. And I'm confident that this is the best episode I've ever produced. Not because of me, not at all. Actually, my part in this episode is rather short, but because of the amazing, amazing guests featured today. Yes, you heard correctly. Today, the NerdLab features more than one guest. And to be a little more precise, you will be listening to 14 of the greatest game designers of all times. To increase the excitement for today's episode, let me tell you only some of the games these designers have created. Shadows over Camelot, Battlestar Galactica, the board game, Spirit Island, Good Critters, Gloomhaven, Terraforming Mars, Everdell, Dominion, Scythe, Eons End, Pokemon, Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, Lord of the Rings and Magic the Gathering. From my point of view, these designers have created the best games in the world. They sold hundreds of thousands or even millions of copies of their games and they are the brains behind the most successful Kickstarter campaigns out there. Their knowledge is unique and their games are my main source of inspiration. Their experience makes them role models for many other designers like you and me and all of them are going to share their most important advice with you. But before we dive into our main quest today, let me tell you why I came up with the idea of doing this episode. The core idea for this episode is to ask the same question to a lot of different people. And the reason for this is, first, I just love it when different people tackle the same problem and bring their own experience and expertise to answer the question. Something that is quite similar to playing a co-op game. Getting very intelligent people to answer the same question does not only allow you to learn a lot about the topic, but also a little bit about that person because you can see from which angle they approach the question compared to the others. The overall result from combining all the answers is so impressive because it combines the wisdom of so many amazing people. And the second reason why I reached out to the best game designers in the world is an easy one. Because I wanted to learn from them. And I wanted you to learn from them too. One quote that you may have heard of is, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. The quote is from a motivational speaker called Jim Rohn um, and at its core it says we as human beings are heavily influenced by those closest to us. It affects our way of thinking, our self-esteem and our decisions. To be honest, I don't give much about the number five here. I think the number of people having a significant influence on us is much, much higher than that. And that's why I always try to get influenced by very positive and successful people. And who could be better suited than someone who is already there where I want to be in the future. 
That's why I worked hard to put this episode together, so we all have the chance to learn from the very best in the industry, from our role models. It was easy to identify the best game designers in the world. I just had to look at the games I enjoyed the most. But then I still needed a question for them to answer. And as mentioned, I wanted everyone to answer the same question. So I thought a while about it and then I realized that I just wanted to get their most valuable piece of advice. And because I'm just at the beginning of the journey, I phrased the question in a way that they could relate to that situation, even when they are so much ahead of me in terms of game design. The question I asked everyone was, what is the one thing you wish you had known before you started your journey as a game designer? And the responses I got are very, very impressive. They are diverse and they are very helpful. And I don't think they are only for beginners. I'm pretty sure they are helpful no matter where you are at your journey. So without further ado, let's get right into it. The first one is Cory Koneska. You probably know him from the games he designed or at least was involved in, uh, like Battlestar Galactica, the board game, Rune Wars or Descent or Eldritch Horror or Star Wars Imperial Assault and many, many others. Let's hear what Cory has to share with us. Hi, this is Cory Koneska, a game designer at Fantasy Flight Games. I've designed tons of different board games Everything from Rune Wars, a fantasy strategy game, to Battlestar Galactica, the board game. So if I had to identify one thing that I wish I'd known before starting my journey as a game designer, it would be that the one thing that you really need is grit. That's, that's the dedication and your ability to kind of smash through obstacles I mean, there are a lot of obvious things that a game designer needs. You need to be creative. You need to have good attention to detail. You have to be able to communicate your ideas. But the thing that I think a lot of people don't think about that you really need is that dedication, that commitment, because it's not always fun and it's not always easy to sit down and come up with new ideas and have them not work and have to throw them away and start over again and throw them away and start over again dozens of times and then to be able to sit down and spend dozens of hours if not more writing a rule book those are sorts of things that can take your idea and turn them into not just a game design but something a finished product something that you can be proud of something that you can publish and get out there and really make an impact and give people a good time so, do you have grit? This is the question. Do you have the dedication that Corey speaks of? Um, or do you design just for the sake of designing your own game? There are so many unfinished, unpublished games out there. And I'm sure with many games it's not because of the quality of the design, but because the designers gave up at some point, because they realized that it's difficult, that it's not just fun to make a game but also hard work. And I think we should all be aware that in the end, we will only see our game on the shelves if we manage to push through these difficult project phases. Thank you, Corey, for your input and you definitely have the grid. Looking forward to see your next great creations. 
The next one uh, on the list is Bruno Catala. You may know him from games like uh, Five Tribes, Abyss, King Domino or Shadows over Camelot. Hi, my name is uh, Bruno Catala. I'm a game designer and I made some games like Cyclades, Five Tribes, Abyss or King Domino. Uh, the thing I would have liked to know uh, when I started to design my first game is less is more. What I mean is that when you begin to design your first games, very often you want to prove all the earth that uh, you are unique and you want to put all your ideas into a single game and it's too much. So trying to stay as simple as possible, but keeping the game with a lot of different strategies is probably one of the key uh, to gather a lot of people around the table. Thank you, Bruno. This is definitely a piece of advice I should take more to heart. The game I'm currently working on is more on the complex side. And when I remove a game mechanic, it always feels like I'm taking some of the depth of my game. Even though I know that this will probably make the game better and more suitable for a larger audience, I still find it very difficult. And it is refreshing to hear that someone so successful like you, Bruno, had the same struggles when you started. I think all of the successful designers at some point in time figured out a way to simplify their designs. And so did Mike Elliott, the next one on the list. Let's listen to his advice and how he figured out how to simplify his designs. Hi, my name is Mike Elliott. I've been a game designer for over 20 years now. I started at Wizards of the Coast back in the mid-90s. I was a designer for Magic. I started out as a developer, uh, then got promoted to designer, then got promoted to senior designer, and then later lead designer. I worked on 30 Magic sets. I designed many popular mechanics, uh, such as slivers, and uh, designed well over a thousand cards. I was also the R&D lead for Pokemon for a year and a half for the Pokemon trading card game. Uh, and over the years, I've also worked on other popular trading card games, uh, such as the Hearthstone uh, online trading card game. Uh, in terms of design, I've designed over 20 trading card games, uh, including the Japanese hits, Duel Masters, and Battle Spirits. Uh, Duel Masters has sold well over $1 billion in retail sales, and Battle Spirits has sold well over $700 million in retail sales, and those are my most two popular uh, game products that I've made to date. Uh, I was inducted into the Gaming Hall of Fame in 2017 for my work on trading card games, uh, and my U.S. Uh, game titles also include Thunderstone, Uh, Quarriers, Dice Masters, uh, Shadowrun Crossfire, and Star Trek Fleet Captains. Uh, I still design freelance and work with a number of companies. Uh, I've worked with over 20 companies over the many years, and I still enjoy what I do. Uh, but the question I'm asked is, uh, if I was starting now, uh, what's the one thing I wish I would have known Uh, before starting on my journey as a game designer. Uh, and I would have to say 
probably the most important thing is how important it is to simplify games. I've done dozens of prototypes uh, in my garage. I probably have over a hundred that will sit unpublished because the games are just too complex and take too long to teach and play. Uh, there's certainly a market for complex games of this type, but unless you want to spend months or years developing one of them and you find the right publisher or self-publish the game, it's going to be a really tough road. Uh, nowadays, my first step after coming up with an additional idea and working up a prototype is to see how much of that prototype I can actually strip out and still have a fun game. Uh, I often do this step before I even test the original version because I don't want to waste the playtester's time with something that hasn't gone through uh, what I call the decomplexity filter. Uh, this is a, a game design term that I made up, uh, but you're welcome to use. Uh, so if you can kind of like separate yourself from your game and basically look at it analytically and just basically try and identify what's the fun part and focus on that and basically get rid of all the clutter that's surrounding that. A lot of times you'll build the game out, strip it back down, build it out again. It's much easier to build out a fun game is than it is to strip down an unfun game and try and find what the elements are that are still there that make the game playable and entertaining. Uh, so I find if you, the earlier you start that process of trying to identify the fun elements and make those the center of your design process, the more successful you'll be. Uh, so that's my advice. Uh, I hope this helps. Thank you, Mike, for your advice. That definitely helps. It goes in the same direction of what Bruno just said. This adds another data point that tells me I should probably listen more carefully to that advice than I have done in the past. What I love is the idea of focusing on the fun parts instead of fixing the unfun parts. And that is actually something I try to use during my playtesting sessions where I really try to identify the situations in which my game is the most fun for the players. What I try to figure out is when does it create very positive emotions? Uh, when are the players loving or when do they feel clever? Situations like this. When these situations happen, I try to identify which game mechanics were responsible and try to focus more on these mechanics and make them even more dominant in my game. I think once you identified what is most fun about your game, it is the perfect time to use the decomplexity filter to get rid of everything unnecessary around it. Uh, thank you for the phrase, Mike. I will definitely use it more often in the future. The next guest is Jamie Stegmaier. You probably know him from his games uh, Viticulture, Charterstone, Euphoria or Size. Um, but he's not only a game designer, he is also a publisher and he shares a lot of his knowledge um, about Kickstarter on his blog, which I would definitely recommend. So, Jamie, tell us what's the one thing you wish you had known before you started your journey as a game designer. Hi, this is Jamie Stegmeier uh, from Stonemaier Games. I am the designer of Viticulture, Euphoria, Scythe, and Charterstone, as well as some upcoming games. And I am uh, here to talk about the one thing that I wish I had known before starting my journey as a game designer. And that journey for me started when I was pretty young, when I was six or seven years old. 
uh, as soon as I started playing games, I was interested in designing games. And so looking back to that point in time, well before I thought that this would actually be a career, it was just something I did for fun. Um, the one thing I wish I had known was that the first prototype is not the end of the journey, but rather really just the very beginning of the journey. Um, and by that, I mean, when, when I was young and I was designing games, I would spend a lot of time thinking of the rules and, and uh, building the prototype and figuring out how to play the game. And then I would put it on the table as if it were a finished product. Um, and I would play it with my family or my friends. And I think looking back, I, I wish I had a different mindset about uh, that first prototype because it, it felt it, it felt really good to actually build something and actually put something on the table as it should. And it still does. But um, I wish I had kind of tweaked my mentality to think of that first prototype as the beginning instead of the end. And in doing so, I wouldn't have been surprised when that first pr prototype didn't play well. Because it, even now, my first prototypes never play well. Um, it takes many, many playtests before the game actually is fun and balanced and, and even functional. Um, and so I wish I'd gone into it with that mentality because I ended up giving up on many of those designs. Because after the first play, it wasn't any fun. And so I never played them again. Um, so looking back, I wish I could go back and tell myself, hey, Jamie, uh, this first prototype, that's just thats just the start of it. Uh, that's just the very tip of the iceberg of the design process. Um, and that you can have so much that you can learn from playtesting that game over and over again with different people, um, whether you're there in person playtesting with them or you're sending it out to people around the world to, to blind playtest without you there. Um, I, I wish I'd looked at it from that perspective and fully understood that no matter how I picture a game working in my head, when I play it with actual human people, it's going to play out very differently. Um, and in that way, again, that first prototype is just the beginning of that journey of understanding how my fellow humans interact with this game and adjusting things and changing things completely uh, so that those humans can have a better, more fun experience rather than treating that first prototype as, uh, as the end of the journey. Um, and so I, this is what I want to offer to you. Any other designers out there who are just starting out and, and uh, I figured this might be a little helpful for you to know that um, while it is very satisfying to build that first prototype, and I think it's great to build that first prototype, uh, that you should have very low expectations for the results. And uh, I, I'd recommend treating that as, as just the beginning of a long journey for that game. Um, or maybe it will be the end of the journey for that game. Maybe you'll realize that it isn't very good. I, I have plenty of games that I've designed that after I play it for the first time, I realize, oh, like this, this just is not worth pursuing. And I do put it away, and that's okay too. Uh, yeah, thank you for, for uh, letting me share my thoughts here. And if you want to discuss more game design stuff with me, I do have a YouTube channel called My Favorite Game Mechanism In, where I talk about a lot of different game mechanisms and a lot of different games. Feel free to join me there. Thanks. Thank you, Jamie, for your reply. That mentality is definitely something I can relate to. When I tested my first game, I didn't have the attitude or the expectation that the game would be really good. But I treated this first test in another way as it would be the end of the journey. I put so much time and effort into that prototype that I lacked the strength and motivation to process the feedback after the playtest effectively. And that wasn't because the feedback was bad or demotivating. 
only because I needed some distance to the game because I put so much effort into this first prototype that I was just exhausted afterwards. In retrospect, I have to say that it would have been better or would have made more sense to start with a slightly worse prototype and instead save a little bit of my energy and momentum for the follow-up of the playtest. Because, as you said, I think the phase after the first playtest is even more important as the phase before the playtest. And I think this goes in the same direction of um, what you just recommended here, Jamie. Next time, I will treat the first playtest not as the end, but as the very beginning of the journey. Thanks, Jamie. You know you are a big inspiration to me, not only because of your game designs, but also because of your content that you produce and the way you share your knowledge with others. So um, have a look at Jamie's blog or his YouTube channel. Um, I can really recommend it. The next designer is James Wilson, designer of Everdell, a game with an impressive board game geek rating of 8 and an even more impressive board presence. There was a time this year where almost every second image on my Instagram feed was from Everdell. So James, let us know what's the one thing you wish you had known before you started your journey as a game designer. Hi, this is James Wilson, the designer of Everdell. Something I wish I had known before becoming a game designer was to have a proper perspective on failure. And what I mean by failure is when you build a prototype and you put it on the table and it's just broken and pieces of it don't work. This last year I had the honor of attending Essen where I was able to meet Uwe Rosenberg in person and speak with him. He's the designer of Agricola and a big inspiration for me. He was telling me about a new game that he's working on and he said he's exploring and he's learning. And he's building a lot of prototypes and playing them and then uh, taking the knowledge from them and the pieces that don't work and the things that do and then re-implementing and trying again and trying again and trying again. He doesn't really view it as failure. He views it as learning. And that's something that I'm trying to implement into my own design process is that uh, when I put a prototype on the table and it doesn't work, which it will not work, uh, first prototype, second, third, there's always pieces that don't work. To view that failure or that broken system as a learning process and to take the little bits of ideas that may be good and then to try and re-implement them again. So that's some advice that I would give or something I wish I had known back when I started is to view failure simply as learning and then take what you've learned and try again. Thank you, James, for your advice. That is definitely something I have experienced myself before. There was a show on this podcast where I asked the audience if frustration and failure is an integral part of game design. And I think it is um, because you put a lot of effort in designing a mechanic, for example, um, just to realize that it is not working and that you have to throw away the work from the last weeks or even month. And that can be very hard. And accepting these failures and to interpret them as learning is something that is very difficult. But I think it's maybe one of the most important abilities of a game designer. So I would recommend to learn this rather fast because it will help you to not only grow as a game designer, but also grow as a person. The next one on the list is Fabian Zimmermann, 
um, the designer of Tiefe Taschen and Good Critters. My name is Fabian Zimmermann. My first published design was the negotiation game Tiefe Taschen. In this game, the players are corrupt politicians with a president distributing money. I had a crowdfunding campaign for this game and self-published it in 2016. Last year, a re-implementation with some rule improvements and a different theme was released by Arkane Wonders. It is called Good Critters and was published in the Dice Tower Essentials line. At the moment, I'm working in collaboration with other game designers on several dice games. One is a roll and write game together with Manfred Keller. So what do I wish I had have known when I became a game designer? There are definitely a few things I'm glad not to have known at this time. For example, how hard it is to get a game published or how much work it is to self-publish and also sell your own game. But the one thing I wish I had have been better at is playtesting my designs. A former version of Tiefe Taschen was really broken, but playing this version with friends was still so much fun. So it took me a while to see all the design flaws. When testing another never published prototype, one of the playtesters an established game designer and publisher told me why he doesn't like this game at all. I started to explain my design choices and the idea behind these, these choices. But he just answered, I'm designing games for over 20 years now, so do not tell me how I should feel when playing your game. This was the moment when I realized it is not important how clever I was when designing a game. All that counts is this game fun for the players or not. It is great to get honest feedback from your playtesters, especially the feedback you do not like at all, like that certain parts of your design are broken or are not fun at all. Using this feedback efficiently is a skill I wish I had already developed before starting my journey as a game designer. Becoming defensive when someone critiques your game is human. Have you ever seen the reaction of a mother when someone says something negative about her child? That is pretty much the same situation. And it is normal human behavior that the first thing you want to do is to protect your baby and to defend your design choices. But if you want to get the most out of your playtests, you need to listen. Listen, listen, listen. I really like what Fabian said. It is not important how clever you as a game designer are. It is only important how the players feel. And that is something you cannot tell them. That is something you need to listen to. Thank you, Fabian, for your great advice. The next one on the list is Kevin Riley, designer of Aeon's End and former guest on this podcast. Hi, I'm Kevin Riley, designer of Aeon Zen, cooperative deck builder. I've been designing board games full-time for about three, three and a half years now. Uh, my first game was Aeon Zen, which started off as kind of a riff off of Dominion, and eventually transformed into something that was very, very different. 
the question I'm here to answer is, what is one thing I wish I had known before starting out as a game designer? Um, I think the best, the best advice I could have given myself is to make the project smaller and don't be afraid to start over. There is a sense or a sentiment that when you do work, that work needs to become something physical for it to be valuable. And that's, that's wrong. Anytime you learn, the work is useful. And some of the games that I've worked on more recently and when designing new content for Aeon's End, I just have to remember that every single test is a valuable experience as long as you're engaged and, and trying to learn something from it. And if the end result of two months of work is throwing the whole project out, using everything that you've learned and, and starting fresh, then that's good. That's okay. That's how good games are usually made, at least in my experience. Game design is a, a wandering road. It's not a, it's not a path. It's not an arrow from point A to point B. It's a, it's a journey through a forest where you're trying to escape, but you don't know where it is and you can't, you can't get above it. You can't see where you're trying to go. You just, Take each step each day, one at a time, and you try and make it a little bit better next time. So that's the main advice. Don't be afraid to start over. Don't be afraid to throw away physical work to get out of a, a corner that you've designed yourself into. Use everything that you've learned and, and give it another try fresh from the beginning. Hope that helps. And that's it. Goodbye. Thank you, Kevin, for your advice. There's only one thing I would like to add here. When you have to start over, make sure you made a note why you had to throw away your ideas, mechanics or prototypes. After a few weeks, when you think about the old ideas again, you will often only remember the positive aspects. Just like the ex-girlfriend who, after some time, suddenly only had positive qualities. And you can't really remember why you actually broke up with her. In order to resist the attempt to try out the same faulty idea again and again after some time, um, I have a small document in which I record which changes I made with each test run. And I add a small note to it um, to remember myself why I got rid of a certain aspect of the game. Though, if you enjoyed the advice from Kevin, um, you should probably listen to episode 15 of the Nerd Lab, in which Kevin and I talk about the early design phase, as well as um, his game Eon's End. The next guest on the list is Eric Royce, designer of Spirit Island. And boy, did he fail in the task I gave him. Instead of naming just one thing he would like to have known before he started his journey as a game designer, he returned a whole list of advice. I would propose that we are going to listen to him first and then we are going to decide whether he still passes the exam or not. Hi, my name is Eric Royce, designer of Spirit Island, Fealty and the upcoming Science or Die. Uh, Marvin has asked me, what's the one thing you wish you'd known before starting as a game designer? If I could only say one thing, it would be do whatever you need to to enable iteration on your games, with iteration being the sort of try stuff, see what works, change some things, try again cycle. Uh, exactly what 
enabling iteration involves will vary. For me, it means don't blow a lot of time on iconography or presentation or looking nice before it's really needed. Uh, but for you, it might mean seeking out and arranging uh, a group of people to play test with regularly or, or something else entirely. Uh, it can change over the course of a project. Early in a design, it might be fastest to scroll out a prototype on, on note cards just to try out the core ideas. Uh, but later on, it might be better to have card templates and spend some time, invest some time uh, setting those up so you can change and reprint super quickly. If I could add a second thing, it would be that this idea of iteration applies not just to individual designs, but to your own self-improvement as a game designer. Uh, you'll learn a lot more from designing many games than you will from incessantly polishing the same one over and over. Uh, you know, just remember, you also want to practice finishing games. That's a different skill set and a good one to have in addition to starting designs. All right. Usually I'm pretty good at following directions, but I'm going to keep going here and Marvin can trim this down if he needs to, and we'll go on with more, more than two things. Third thing, uh, judging the appeal of your own work is very hard. Uh, this cuts both ways. Sometimes an idea will seem super fun to you, and most people just won't really find it compelling. Uh, and sometimes when you've been working really hard on a design for a really long time, uh, you start to lose sight of that initial spark that uh, draws people to it. So find people who can be honest in what they like or don't like, so that if you have an idea which seems great to you but doesn't appeal to others, you know that early. Uh, and Find people who can be enthusiastic about you about the stuff which they really do like. Uh, criticism is a super important part of improving a game, but so is praise of the parts that are awesome, and uh, the latter can also sort of really uh, nourish your motivation, which is important. Uh, related to this, item number four, uh, most playtesters will be biased towards liking your game, or at least biased towards telling you they liked your game. There are certainly exceptions, but as a general rule of thumb, take feedback of, yeah, I like that, as it was fine, but nothing special. Uh, so try and zero in on the parts they liked most uh, and shoot to eventually be getting feedback along the lines of, I really liked that, where there's sort of enthusiasm behind it. Uh, or even better, uh, if, a play if play testers are poking you later on saying like, hey, that prototype I tried, has that gone anywhere? It sure would be neat to see that again. Then that's a really good sign. And uh, uh, play testers asking you like, can I print and play a copy of this and bring it back to, to my group to play test remotely for you? That's an even better sign. Uh, and last of all, number five, if you have a game to pitch, arrange it ahead of time, if at all possible. Uh, I was so nervous about my first pitch that instead of reaching out over email ahead of time, which I kind of felt weird about because I'd never met any of the people I was contacting, uh, I went to the con and sort of hoped to make in-person contact first. But publishers are just incredibly busy at conventions. And while they may well try to make time for you, there are loads of awesome people in this industry, uh, really just many fantastic individuals. Uh, but it will be less stressful for you and less stressful for them and just better around all around for all of you if you arrange it ahead of time first. Uh, it'll, it's, it just works out better. Okay, that's it. No way I'm going to trim that down, Eric. Sorry. Therefore, your contribution was just too valuable. Your first advice is definitely my number one problem at the moment. Iteration. And you're absolutely right that the how is different for everyone. For me, it is time. I need to find the time to iterate. Life is busy with a day job, family and a podcast. I have a gaming group I could playtest with once a week, but I simply cannot find the time to iterate once per week. 
But that is exactly where I need to get to. Um, that's exactly where I want to get to. But how to get there is something I will have to figure out. Probably by setting my focus a little bit different and making very small incremental steps from week to week. So from my side, you still get a pass on the exam, Eric, for your advice. But let's see whether the listeners agree or not. The next guest is Donald Vaccarino, the designer of Dominion. He replied to me uh, in text form, so that's why I'm going to read his answer for you. He replied that he wished he would have started trying to get games published before Dominion. He started making games in 1995, but it took him making Dominion in 2006 to think, okay, I should try to get this published. Um, he now has some of his older games published as well, um, and he wished he had published them earlier when there was less competition in the industry. I then asked him, what held you back to publish your designs earlier? And he answered that he had no idea how possible it was. In his imagination, the publishers were large cooperations, uh, like in the movie industry with a lot of people. And they got a lot of stuff submitted to them and they did not give attention to the nobodies. And it took him some time to realize that there are actually a lot of very approachable companies out there who you can really go to at a convention and show your games personally. Another reason why Donald didn't approach publishers earlier uh, was because this was not really the work he wanted to do or he was interested in. Uh, he wanted to de design games and not try to sell himself or his games. So what I have learned from Donald's reply is that you just have to try. I mean, what is the worst that could happen? A publisher could say no to your idea. That is really not the worst thing in the world, is it? If you want to move forward in life, you have to risk something. And pitching one of your ideas will probably always make you feel a little nervous. But don't let anxiety and doubt get into your way. Believe in your work and have the self-confidence that the stuff you create is of value for someone else. Put yourself out there as soon as you can. And once you have done this, you can follow the advice of Jacob Frixelios, designer of Terraforming Mars, who is the next on the list. Hello, I'm Jacob Frixelios. I'm the designer of Terraforming Mars. Uh, I guess the one thing that uh, uh, that I didn't realize when I first started designing games uh, was the amount of work and the importance of refining the game and taking from be from taking the game from being uh, a good and fun game to being a great game. Uh, so in our uh, first publications in Frix Games, uh, we released my my uh, game, first game, Space Station. And also Wilderness and Brawling Barons from my brothers. And um, they were really fun games. And we developed them, you know, like like most uh, beginning developers do. You start with some theme. You start and you, inspired, uh, you are inspired to make some mechanics from the theme. Make some interlocking mechanics and uh, flesh out the theme with the different details and stuff like that. And it's usually, it's, it's usually a really fun game to play with a family and friends. Uh, but once we released them, uh, we realized that, well, they are not uh, fun for everyone. Uh, we could make that better to make them appeal to more people. And they are also, uh, there are also a lot of details that we could have done better. Uh, so 
uh, once we realized this, we started to work on our uh, next games, like uh, Fleet Player Conflict, Terraforming Mars, and After the Virus. And uh, we worked uh, a lot, and we got um, we realized the importance of having beta testers, for example, uh, to get these uh, different views. You know, the different game groups also have different meta, and uh, yeah. So, so some some people, some other people discovered things that we could not discover in our in our own beta te- in our own testing and frick games. Um, so that was really important, and we, we realized this, and but we didn't realize at first how how much work it was. Uh, but um, yeah, so terraforming Mars, for example, that was a lot of work because then we realized, okay, we have to make this the best game it can be. So we need to refine everything. Everything has to be as good as it can be. Um, so um, that's our. Uh, new goal. We didn't really see that that goal when we started out, when I started out. Uh, but now we really are focused on making the game the games as good as they po- can possibly be. That takes time. It takes uh, <laughs> humility. Uh, it takes a lot of work. Uh, but I think the results are worth it. So um, yeah, I guess that's my view. Um, the importance and the work of of taking a game from being good to being great, and of course, uh, I'm still learning, uh, so we have more work. To <laughs> yeah, there's more time to to develop those skills as well. So um, yeah, that's my feedback. Bye bye. Thank you, Jacob, for your advice. I love your attitude. Making the game the best it possibly can be is a great way of viewing the design process. Putting in that little bit of extra effort to make something great is definitely worth it if you want to achieve greatness. On the other side, someone once told me, you need to know when something is good enough, otherwise you will never finish your game. I think it was uh, Kevin Riley when we talked about um, the early design process. Um, from my point of view, however, the two approaches are not mutually exclusive. You only have to distinguish between the different project phases. In the early design phase, it is important to get a playable version on the table as soon as possible in order to identify the fun aspects of the game. In the later phase of the design, when it comes to optimizing the game, The attention to detail is what distinguishes the good games from the outstanding games. The success of Terraforming Mars definitely proves Jacob right. And I think most of the games uh, would benefit from that little bit of extra effort. The next one on the list is Rainer Knizia, an outstanding game designer with more than 600 games published. And yes, you heard correctly, more than 600 published games. How is this even possible, you may ask? Um, And I have to say, I have no idea. The game I adore the most from Reiner is Lord of the Rings, the board game. But there are so many games, I cannot name them all. Um, So let's listen to Reiner and um, see what we can learn from someone who has published more than 600 games. My name is Reiner Knizia. The question about the one thing... I would have or should have liked to know before starting my journey as a game designer 
is a difficult one. I started designing games at the age of 10. I got published in boxes and books at the age of 30 after publishing my own play-by-mail magazine and I became a full-time game designer at the age of 40. So what time are we talking about? You know, I studied and taught mathematics at universities in different countries, learning different languages. And of course, mathematics is all about modeling. I then went into banking and the software industry. Getting a loan from a bank is not much different than placing a license agreement with a game publisher. And of course, the digital games are everywhere around today. I was also lucky when I started to work with publishers to choose small publishing houses or even individual people who published some games because these smaller publishing companies put a lot of heart into their projects and I could learn a lot from them. That certainly boosted me starting getting published and becoming a successful game designer. So in hindsight, there's not really anything I could point out that I should have known when I started any steps of my game designer career. Maybe it would have been nice to know the lottery numbers of next week. Thank you, Rainer, for your advice. And um, if you have any other advice on how to learn the skill of foreseeing the lottery numbers, uh, please let me know. You can send me a private email. Um, that would probably make the journey a lot easier. When I thought about the other statement of Rainer um, about the small publishing houses, I realized that as so often in life, it really depends on the individual people you work with. Your advantage as a game designer is that you have the power to choose with whom you surround yourself. In an employment relationship, you often don't have that luxury. So my advice would be to choose your business partners wisely by making sure they have the same goals for the game as you do. The next two game designers are legends of the gaming industry. Richard Garfield, designer of Magic the Gathering, Roborelli, King of Tokyo, Keyforge and many more. And Mike Selinker, designer of Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, Apocrypha and Betrayal at the House on the Hill. They've known each other for ages, so it's no wonder they have similar advice for us. But also from completely different angles, which tells us a little bit more about their perspectives and their preferences when it comes to game design. Let's start with Richard Garfield. When I first started game design, one of the things I wish I knew was how valuable a resource publishers were. When I first began game design, I saw them as uh, someone who would evaluate the strengths of the game and whether it would sell, and then they would fund it. Now I see them as uh, providing uh, much, much more than just funding. I, I see them as providing uh, an often important judgment as to whether this will work for their audience. Uh, they know their audience generally better than I do. Um, and uh, they often provide uh, excellent development and uh, they uh, are able to uh, um, build a look around the product, which, uh, which is uh, really critical to its success. 
even rejection of games from publishers, or perhaps even uh, uh, most important, the rejection of a game with publishers uh, uh, leads to improvement of that game. So when I uh, send a game to a publisher and it's rejected, which uh, it often is, um, uh, I can take their feedback and improve the game uh, almost every time. Uh, sometimes that rejection is just because it doesn't reach their audience in the right way. And, and oftentimes that's an opportunity for me to increase the breadth uh, of its appeal. Uh, sometimes the rejection is, is because uh, some of the mechanics don't work too well for them. Maybe it runs too long or it's too complicated or uh, you know, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong for them. Uh, I can often take that feedback and improve the game. Even when, uh, as sometimes happens, their rejection is simply a mistake on their part that they just don't see what's going on, the potential of the game, uh, that's an opportunity for me to figure out how to make that opportunity more apparent because that's not only valuable for a publisher, it's valuable for the people who are going to be buying the game eventually. When I've tried to publish without a publisher, I often miss these qualities. And even though self-publishing with Kickstarter and it's like provided us many, many different wonderful games, I'm often... Uh, surprised when I pick up a, a, a game from Kickstarter that looks amazing, sounds amazing, but ultimately feels flat. Uh, and I think it's because of that, uh, because the game has entirely been incubated in this uh, uh, feedback loop of, uh, of friends and family and pro-game investors, uh, rather than the more neutral, broad, uh, cooler head of a, of a publisher. So there you go. Thank you, Richard, for this advice, which I think is especially interesting for aspiring game designers like me and a lot of listeners in the audience. I know that many designers are afraid of presenting their games to publishers, especially if the game isn't finished yet. That's probably because you always compare your game to the publisher's finished blockbusters. If you haven't worked with dozens of publishers yourself and don't really know which tasks they take over during the development process, it can be intimidating. And it is difficult for someone without experience to evaluate the value of a publisher. But when you then hear that someone with the experience of Richard Garfield still appreciates these different perspectives, it shows me once again that there is much, much more to a successful game than a good designer. And the perspective that an experienced publisher can contribute is hard to replace. Mike Salinka also values different perspectives very high. Let's listen to what he has to say. Hi, this is Mike Selinker. You may have played some of my games, like the Pathfinder Adventure card game Betrayal at House on the Hill and Apocrypha. Marvin asked me this question. What's the one thing I wish I had known before starting my journey as a game designer? I think that's easy. The answer is... Never design alone. I've benefited so much from surrounding myself with fellow designers and developers who can rip my ideas to shreds. People who come from different backgrounds. People who don't look or think like me. People whose commonality is that they love games and they put their egos aside to make them as deep and replayable as possible. The end result is that every game of mine speaks with many proud voices. I can hear them as I play the games. 
I hear the voices of Chad Brown and Paul Peterson and Liz Spain and Gabby Weidling and Elisa Teague and Keith Richmond and Skylar Woodies and Aviva Schechterson, Tannis O'Connor, Rodney Thompson, Bo Radakovich, Vic Wirtz, Mike Krahulik, Jerry Holkins, and so many others. So that's my advice. Find people you like and have them turn your rough ideas into gold. And every chance you get, give them credit in public. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot, Mike, for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, Mike also values the perspectives of different people very, very high. In episode 20 of the Nerd Lab, I had the honor to interview Mike uh, for almost an hour. And we discussed a little bit about how to get into uh, the gaming industry and how to find the right people to cooperate with. I highly recommend uh, to listen to this episode because Mike was just an awesome guest and I learned so much from him. When I think about Richard and Mike's two statements, it's easy to see that as a designer you can't do everything on your own and you depend on others. That is the perfect transition to Isaac Childress, the designer of Gloomhaven, who shares what we should do once we realize that we cannot do everything on our own. Uh, hey, this is Isaac Childress uh, calling in about uh, the one thing I wish I had known before I started my journey of game design. Uh, really, so I think the most important thing to know before you embark on game design is that you can and should ask for help. Uh, I started off trying to do everything myself, and it was brutal. But there are so many people in this community who can help and make things so much easier, even if it's just advice. Uh, you know, you don't have to design in a vacuum. Uh, read development blogs, listen to Ludology or this podcast. Reach out to people if you have specific questions and you can't find the answers to them. And of course, play lots of games. Those those can help too, but they, you don't have to ask them. They're uh, not sentient. Yeah, uh, so anyway, and even when you're playtesting, even more than just asking your friends for help, seek out local playtesting groups. Uh, you know, the, they exist and they're a much better resource uh, than your friends, really. Uh, and then even after that, uh, you don't have to do your own artwork. You don't have to do your own graphic design. You don't have to self-publish. At every step of the way, there are people who can help you make your design and send it out into the world. And, you know, even if you do decide to self-publish, ask for help. Uh, read Jamie Stegmeier's Kickstarter lessons. Reach out to Kickstarter professionals who can help you run your campaign. You know, you, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to ask for help instead. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, Isaac. I once read a comment um, to one of your posts on BoardGameGeek in which a user asked how it is possible to design a game as complex as Gloomhaven alone. I think with your advice today you gave the perfect answer. And I can only agree with that. The board game community is absolutely unique. I don't know of any industry where producers and consumers are so closely intertwined. I don't know of any industry where people help each other as much as in this community. The participation of everybody in this podcast episode is also a great example um, of how helpful even the best designers in the world are. I'm so happy to be part of this awesome community and I'm proud to be able to give something back every now and then. And that's why I'm also not afraid to ask for help on a regular basis, be it on Reddit, Facebook, BoardGameGeek or in our own NerdLab community. And that's it for today. I hope you have come up with some ideas that will move you forward on your own personal quest. 
For each tip I personally got several ideas which I would like to adapt to my own designs. As I mentioned at the beginning, I am convinced that we can learn so much from the greatest designers in the world. But what I'm even more convinced of is the fact that you have to turn advice into concrete actions to make them really helpful. And that's why I took the time to define some action items for each of the pieces of advice that you have heard today. Little exercises to help you apply the advice of the world's leading game designers to your own situation and your own designs. With these thought exercises, you will be able to self-reflect your own game and your habits as a game designer. In addition to that, I also added some of my favorite resources that can help you to dig deeper into these topics. You can download the PDF file from the website at nerdlikeaboss.com advice or by simply following the link on the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please let me know or leave a review on iTunes. You can find me on nerdlikeaboss.com or um, as nerdlikeaboss on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening and until next week, keep designing great games and nerd like a boss. <laughs> <laughs>